I have probably shared in the past that apologies are not always my strength. This may be, you know, part of being a guy. And I've had a number of conversations over the years with my wife where I realized that, you know, what I thought was an apology, she didn't think was an apology. For example, it turns out if I say, I'm sorry your feelings got hurt, that's not necessarily received as an apology. Um, Go figure. Uh, So because of my personal failings in this subject matter, I really enjoy reading bad apologies. So I have a few I want to share with you this morning, and uh, I, I just stole these from the internet. None of these are mine, I promise, okay? So if you just put the first one up, um, this is a sign that says, sorry for this graffiti. <laughs> I just love that. Okay. Uh, and then the next one, this is a note from a child. It says, dear Brody, Miss P made me write you this note. All I want to say sorry for is not being sorry because I tried to feel sorry, but I don't. Liam. <laughs> So good. All right, the, the next one's a little bit crass, okay, and it may not be church appropriate, but it's like a t-shirt, okay? I'm sorry I hurt your feelings when I called you stupid. I really thought you already knew. <laughs> okay, don't, don't say that to anybody, please. Uh, and my last one I probably have shared with you before, um, but I really love it. It's a note. It says, so I hit your car and someone is watching. So I'm writing this note. Blah, blah, blah. Still watching. Yay, they're gone. Sorry, dude. Here's some free soap. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, if you've had an experience um, with bad apologies, uh, you've probably sometimes wondered, boy, is it even worth forgiving this person, right? I mean, if that's the kind of apology I'm going to get, get uh, is it, I mean, that's not even genuine. I'm not going to forgive people that don't really deserve it or want it. Right? Uh, and then the next question sort of naturally is, well, how do I decide who deserves to be forgiven, right? How do I make the decision about like when it's really worth it to forgive somebody and when they just, it just ain't going to happen? So this is exactly the question that Jesus and Peter are talking about. And, and Peter comes to Jesus, uh, and, and you need to understand that um, in, the, in the time of Jesus, the rabbinical tradition, and this really comes out mostly out of the prophet Amos, but the rabbinical tradition was that you were to forgive someone up to three times, okay? And after the third time, you just, you were done with them. And so Peter says, you know, Jesus, I, I get that you're different from all the other rabbis. And I like that about you. And, and I get that you're more into this grace and forgiveness stuff. So I know the normal answer is three times, but I'm going to say, Jesus, what if I double that and I add one? We're all the way up to seven. Seven, which is, you know, the number of completion. Wouldn't that be good? If somebody, if somebody uh, is forgiven seven times, isn't that enough? And then I can be done with them. And, and Jesus, I, I can imagine Jesus saying, Peter, I'm so proud of you. Like, I'm so proud that you're getting that I'm about grace and forgiveness. But you didn't quite get it right. Because the answer isn't seven, but 77. Or actually, some translations, 70 times seven. And, and Jesus' point to Peter is, uh, I don't want you to count, right? I want you to forgive beyond the measure where you might count how many times you've forgiven. I want you to come back again and again with forgiveness, even when you think they don't deserve it, even when the apologies are really bad. And then Jesus tells a parable to explain his vision of a world where people forgive like that. And I think in this, in this parable, there are three moments that are designed to shock us, right? I mean, to really, as you hear the parable, like shake you to your core. 
So Jesus says, there's a king, and the king is settling accounts with his slaves. And one slave comes, and uh, he owes 10,000 talents. Let's pause there for a minute. Uh, 10,000 talents. Well, we don't really measure things in talents anymore. But by way of comparison, a talent is about 20 years worth of wages. So if you work for 20 years, you'd make about a talent of gold. Uh, So if we want to translate this into modern terms, people debate about how large the amount of 10,000 talents would be, but somewhere around $2.5 billion dollars right? We're in that vicinity, right? Some people argue it's more like 10 billion. We're going to do the conservative 2.5. So this guy shows up and he says, hey, guess what? You owe me 2.5 billion dollars. And and the first moment we got to say, how the heck does that happen, right? I mean, I understand getting in debt, but how do you make so many mistakes? How do you get so in debt that you have a 10,000 talent debt to anyone? I mean, that's just shocking. Uh, and then the, the second part of this, actually, this is still part of the same first shock. But at the end of the story, we realize that we are that man, right? I mean, when Jesus says, you need to do what God did for him, you're, you're the one with the 10,000 talent debt. So we are in the middle of, or not in the middle, we're the beginning of renovating our kitchen and we, you know, we priced it out and we talked to all the different companies and it, it's an enormous amount of money, right? It's enormous. And I don't like spending money in general, um, but we knew it had to be done. And so we made an agreement, we made our plan, we booked somebody. And then um, I, I, I just sort of, because I didn't want to think about it, put it out of my head. And a few weeks ago, I checked my bank account and all this money was missing, <laughs> And I freaked out for like probably 15 minutes before I realized my wife had paid the down payment on the kitchen and, you know, that's where all that money went. But I just remember looking at that bank account and thinking, what happened? Right? Like I thought I, I, thought I had all this and it's gone. And I imagine that's the moment this guy has times a million, right? Or times 2.5 billion oh yeah, I knew I'd made some mistakes. Yeah, I I mean, I knew I wasn't perfect. I mean, I knew I had some debt. But when it all gets called at once, the debt is staggering. And Jesus says, that's us, right? We're we're the ones with that staggering debt. Uh, So um, how is that possible? Well, um, I I think we have to understand how debt works, right? How sin works. When we offend someone, the person we offend matters, right? So if I go out and I um, yell at a stranger on the street, that's bad behavior, right? We can all agree that's inappropriate. But if I go and I yell at my employer, well, that, that's going to get me in more trouble, right? If I'm in school and I'm, um, you know, being rude to one of my friends, that's one thing. But if I'm rude to the teacher, there's a whole different set of consequences, right? There's a recognition that um, how we treat others matters, but it also matters um, what respect they are due. In the Old Testament, they make this abundantly clear because when God lists the 10 most important things His people should do to be in relationship with Him, one of them is honor your father and mother. Uh, and the understanding is that there is no one on earth, at least, that you owe a greater debt to 
than your parents. And therefore, um, if you dishonor them, it is more significant than dishonoring any other earthly person, so much so that it was a capital crime in Israel, right? You could be executed if you were dishonoring your parents. And so, when we come to God and we say, God, yeah, you're worthy of all the honor and respect in the world, when we say, God, you deserve all of my focus and praise and devotion, and I don't give that to you, and I treat you as I treat my friends or my teacher, or then the scale of that debt is magnified by the character of the one to whom we are sinning against. So the guy says, hey, hey, whoa, king, before you throw me into prison and my wife and my kids and all that stuff, um, just be patient with me and I'll pay you back. Right? And this is what we would say, right? Oh, hey, just give me a second. I can make this work. It's ludicrous, right? How long would you have to work to pay back $2.5 billion, right? And it's ludicrous when we say this to God ourselves, right? Oh, God, you know what? I know I've made some mistakes, but I'll make them right again. If I take someone else's life, not taking lives and doing charity work doesn't make that right again. If I cheat on my spouse, then later on in my marriage, being a really good husband and not cheating doesn't make that right again. And if I place money or fame or video games or alcohol or even my family or my spouse or my country above God in my heart, that's idolatry. And if I come back later and say, oh, no, God, now, now I really think you're the most important thing, doesn't make that right again. We don't have any way to pay back the debt that we have to God. So, the first horrible, shocking thing in this story is the magnitude of the debt that we didn't want to be aware of. But then immediately Jesus comes back with the good news. And the second shock is the king has pity on him and forgives all his debt. This is an insane way to run a kingdom, right? I mean, uh, imagine, okay, uh, who's the richest, anybody know who the richest man in the world is right now? Somebody heard, I heard Jeff Bezos. I'm, I think that's right. I think it's Jeff Bezos, right? Uh, the last time I checked, uh, Jeff Bezos had a net worth of $177 billion. It's um, a lot of money. Uh, Jeff Bezos could do this, right? Jeff could say, hey, you know what? <clears throat> Jim, you know, you, you really owe me $2.5 billion, um, but I'm going to let it go. I'm going to forgive that debt. He could do that, sev- well, let's round up. He could do like 71 times. And for the 72nd person, Jeff Bezos is bankrupt. Well, there's more than 70 people in this room. The richest man in the world couldn't afford to make just our lives right again. What does this say about the king? I mean, this is mind-boggling that there is a king to whom perfect honor and respect is owed uh, that we have not given, to whom we've run up this incredible debt who is willing to forgive not just one of us, but all of us. 
This is the story of Nehemiah, right? And uh, I, I worry sometimes as we read the Old Testament, because people read the Old Testament and they say, boy, God seems so angry. He's always smiting people. He's always, you know, just seems wrathful all the time. And I think that's, that's not the Old Testament that I read. It's not the Old Testament that Nehemiah reads. Nehemiah reads a story of a God who again and again and again sees his people sin and stray from faithfulness and is willing to welcome them back. That, that are engaged in this cycle of sort of sin, repent, repeat, and every time God shows himself to be unbelievably merciful and gracious and he sends rescuers to redeem them whenever they call out for aid. And he never stops, right? He doesn't stop after three times or after seven times or after 77 times. This unbelievable grace of God is really His defining characteristic in this parable, but in the whole story of Scripture. The whole story of Scripture is the story of a God who just can't stop forgiving us. So, the first shock is the magnitude of our debt to God. The second is the unbelievable grace that God exhibits towards us. Uh, But then the third shock is the response of the slave who's forgiven. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, right? Uh, A a paltry sum. Um, uh, That's maybe a hundred days' wages. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had on you? The uncomfortable part of the parable. If you are a Christian, then we should be shocked and offended if you struggle to forgive others. If you are a Christian, then we, those around you, should be shocked and offended if you struggle to forgive others. Because Jesus says, look how much God has done for you. Look how much God has forgiven you. How can you have a different standard for the world that's hurt you than the standard God has for you yourself? Uh, and, and, And... there is no limit to this, right? And, and this is the hardest part. Um, there's no line in the sand where we can say, hey, it's been seven times and I can finally stop forgiving. And, and there's no magnitude of a sin that's too big to be forgiven by us. There was a <clears throat> book that came out a number of years ago called The Shack and uh, got turned into a movie not perfect theology, okay? I'm not asking you to read it as a theological treatise, uh, but a really interesting story. The, the summary of the book is that there is a father whose daughter was murdered, and uh, he receives a letter to go to the shack where um, they're pretty sure she died years later, and the letter turns out to be from God. 
And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all show up in different uh, appearances. And at the end, the Father shows up as a Native American man, and they have a conversation about forgiveness. And I want to play that for you. He killed my daughter. I want to hurt him. I want him to hurt like he hurt me. I want you to hurt him. I know you do. But he too is my son. And I want to redeem him. Redeem him? He should burn in hell. So we're back to you as the judge. So you, you just let him get away with it? Nobody gets away with anything. Everything bears consequences. What he did was horrible. I'm not asking you to excuse what he did. I'm asking you to trust me to do what's right and to know what's best. And then what? Forgiveness doesn't establish your relationship. It's just about letting go of his throat. Mac, the pain inside is devouring you, robbing you of joy and crippling your capacity to love. I can't. You're not stuck because you can't. You're stuck because you won't. You don't have to do this alone. I'm here with you. that scene captures a great deal of what forgiveness means and doesn't mean. Forgiveness doesn't mean a relationship has to be restored. It doesn't mean that the person I'm forgiving has to become my buddy or my friend. It means that we take our hand off their throat. Seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Sometimes the thing we're struggling to forgive isn't just one horrible decision that someone made. Sometimes it's a series of horrible decisions. Sometimes it's the experience again and again of betrayal and of being let down and being disappointed and being lied to. And that, that summation of all of that pain can feel as enormous as the one horrible thing that that father went through. And the challenge for the Christian life is to say that there is something bigger than that pain. There's something bigger than that sorrow and suffering. And as much as I would like to be the judge, that's not my job. I got to turn that over. I, I lied earlier. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to lie. But, but I said there's no line in the sand. Right? I said there's no amount of forgiveness you have to offer until it's enough. And that's actually not true. 
See, there is an amount of forgiveness where you can stop forgiving. When you have forgiven someone else more than God has forgiven you, you're done. So you got to make that decision. How much has God forgiven you? And have you forgiven them that much yet? And what if, what if there was a whole kingdom of people who lived like that? This is Jesus' vision, right? That there would be a kingdom of heaven where people act like this, where they forgive as they have been forgiven to the same amount they have been forgiven. Yeah, you know what? I bet, I bet that community would get taken advantage of sometimes. And I bet they wouldn't care. And I bet that the impact of a people who forgave like that, who lived with that sort of grace, would be immeasurable in this world because there is literally nothing like it. When I do premarital counseling with couples, um, we talk about forgiveness. I think it's really an important topic, especially in relationships. And uh, I say, you know, part of the idea of marriage is you're looking at the person across from you and you're saying, whatever you're going to do in our life together, I decide now I'm going to forgive you for it. That's kind of amazing, right? I mean, whatever it is you're going to do, because I know you're going to do something, and you're going to say something stupid afterwards like, I'm sorry your feelings got hurt. And Whatever you do and however stupidly you apologize for it, I'm already deciding that I'm going to forgive you because that's the relationship I want to have with you. I don't want to allow anything to come between us. What if every Christian lived that way with every other Christian? What if we lived that way even with non-believers? We said, you know what? I've already decided I'm not going to be your best friend. I don't even have to have a relationship with you, right? If what you've done is really horrible, uh, that, could, that could sever a relationship, but I'm not going to keep my hand on your throat. I'm not going to want bad for you. I'm going to want good for you. And whatever it takes, I'm going to find a way to forgive you because of what God has forgiven me for already. At the end of that scene, um, Mac, the father, manages to, to verbalize his forgiveness for the man who killed his daughter. Uh, and there's a moment where God the Father puts His hand on His shoulder and He says, Mackenzie, you are such a joy. And I think every time that we find it in ourselves to offer the same grace to someone else that God offered to us, I think we bring joy to the heart of God. I think God looks down at us and He says, Jim, you are such a joy. I love seeing my kingdom come and my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks for making that happen today. So that's our opportunity. That's our invitation to be that kind of kingdom, to be a people that bring joy to the heart of God because we give off this, this spiraling forgiveness and grace that nobody deserves, especially not us. And so the world looks at us and says, what in the world is going on with them? And how do I get a piece of that? Thanks be to God. Amen.